Have you ever felt stuck in life? Just really stuck. Maybe it's in a job that you hated and you really dread going to work every morning. Eight hours seems like 12 and 40 seems like 60. Maybe you felt stuck in a relationship, a relationship that was a constant drain that you can't get away from. So much drama that you always have to be on guard because you just can't trust this person or those people. That kind of situation that you can't escape is exhausting, isn't it? Well, Jacob, the patriarch, the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac, he had both of those, a job he hated and a tricky family situation. Before Jacob's done in the land of Haran, he will have spent 20 years working for a horrible boss, his uncle Laban, an uncle who has constantly been looking for opportunities to take advantage of him, to cheat him, to exploit him. And Jacob is stuck in this place. It's a place he doesn't want to be. He's in the land of Haran, not the land of Canaan. He had fled there years before. If you remember, those of you who haven't been maybe with us in our study, you remember the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob cheated his brother. His brother wanted to kill him, and so he had to flee. He went to the land of Haran, and there he meets a beautiful woman. He falls in love, and her father, his uncle Laban, cheats him. He says, yeah, work for me seven years. You can have her hand in marriage. And those seven years passed like it was only a few days. The day of the wedding came. There was a great feast. Plenty to drink, it was dark, there was a veil, and lo and behold, he wakes up in the morning, and the woman in his bed is not Rachel, it's Leah, her much less attractive older sister. He had been cheated, tricked by his uncle. He ends up working another seven years just to get her hand in marriage. Now he has two wives, he spent 14 years, and he's in this place of Haran, in this stuck, entangled with his uncle. This was not his home, it's not where he wanted to be. His desire is not just to get some personal relief from the situation. If we go back in the book of Genesis, we see that what Jacob is longing for is really the fulfillment of these great and glorious promises that God had made to Abraham and to his son Isaac and to Jacob himself. The land of Canaan was destined to belong to him, to his children and the 12 tribes that would grow from their families. God had had promised to bless him and to be with him and that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. But Jacob is now entangled in the clan of Laban, and it's going to take quite an effort to gain his independence and to extract his family from the tentacles of his manipulative father-in-law. He's a man without a home, a man without an inheritance, but he's a man who's bearing the promise of God's covenant blessing. You start to wonder, how and when will these promises, these blessings ever come to pass? Well, in the struggle that follows, we see a familiar pattern, patterns that probably reflect what happens in our lives so often, patterns of faith and fear, patterns of obedience, but obedience that's often mingled with compromise. But through it all, we see more proof that God is in control and that God always keeps his promises, protecting and providing for his chosen people, moving his plan of redemption forward through imperfect vessels by his gracious power. There's really three scenes we're going to look at this morning. It's going to cover a pretty big, pretty big chunk. Uh, the end of chapter 30 and then all of chapter 31. The first scene that we see here at the end of chapter 30 really shows us the surprising prosperity of Jacob. 
Jacob arrived in Haran with only the clothes on his back, but he will leave a wealthy man. And this scene shows us how he gets there. Look at the surprising prosperity of Jacob. Once again, in this scene, we have Jacob and Laban bartering, negotiating. You remember what happened last time? Uh, Laban had said to Jacob, name your wages. And Jacob had said, I want to marry your beautiful daughter, Rachel. But this time it's going to be Jacob who gets the upper hand. Look at Jacob's appeal in verse 25 of chapter 30. It says, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, that's the 12th child, the 11th son of Jacob. As soon as that had happened, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. Jacob comes with a request, just like at the end of his first seven years of labor. Remember, he had to approach Laban and say, give me my wife. Time's up. I've done my part. It's time for you to pay up. Well, now he has to point out to Laban that, hey, the contract is over. The additional seven years that I said I would serve, I've put my time in. Let me go. Let me leave. He, re- he desires to return home to his parents. I mean, imagine this. He's got wives and 12 children and Isaac and Rebekah had never met any of them. His beloved parents, he hasn't seen them in 14 years. Not only that, he wants to go home to receive his inheritance and to the land that God has promised him, but he's not a free man. He cannot leave without Laban's permission. You might wonder about that. You might say, hey, listen, I go where I want. I take what job I want. I move where I want. My in-laws don't tell me what to do, but this is a very, very different culture, very different situation. He needs Laban's permission, first of all, because Laban is his employer, and he can't just walk off the job. That would be a big problem. But more than that, he needs his blessing as the head of the clan and the father of his wives and the grandfather of his children to walk away in that day and age when Laban was the head of that clan. It would have been considered a massive offense an outrageous disrespect, and a crime against the family, a crime that would have uh, earned the wrath and, and the punishment of Laban. But Laban's not very excited about this idea of Jacob leaving. Here's where the negotiation starts in verse 27. But Laban said to him, If I found favor in your sight, I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. And Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I've served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today. Removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later. When you come to look into my wages with you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good. Let it be as you have said. Laban replies to Jacob's request with a polite but a very calculated no. Jacob says, let me go. Give me your blessing. Send me away. Maybe there's even a severance package involved. I've served you for all these years. I want to go home. But Jacob's, or Laban rather, says no. He's figured out that Jacob's presence has brought blessing to him. 
remember the promise of God to Abraham back in chapter 12? Those who bless you, I will bless, and those who dishonor you, I will curse. Well, Laban has not exactly blessed him, but he has provided for him. He has given him a place to live, a job. He's met his needs, and he's given his daughters to him in marriage. And because of Jacob's presence there, Laban has been blessed. Just like later Joseph. Everywhere that Joseph goes, remember how Joseph prospers and everyone around him is blessed. It's the same thing here. And basically, Laban is saying, hey, listen, I can't afford to lose such a valuable asset. Maybe you have a family member like that, where everything in their life revolves around them and what benefits them. Well, that's how Laban operates. And if he has his way, Jacob will never leave. So rather than give his blessing and giving him a going away gift, maybe a severance package for his 14 years of labor, Laban asks him to name his wages. Perhaps a new contract can be arrived at and perhaps he can entangle Jacob further. There has to be some sort of deja vu for Jacob here. He's been through this whole movie before, 14 years earlier. Well, Jacob replies by pointing out his value to Laban. He says, you know that it's because of my presence here that you've grown in wealth. And he offers him a deal. Jacob's suggestion is that the white sheep and the the black goats that are born, and that would be the majority, the, the the normal case for these animals, that all of those would belong to Laban. And that the animals of unusual coloration, the abnormalities, you know, the, the random ones, that those would all belong to Jacob. And it would be clear that there was no sneaky additions to Jacob's flock. It would, it would be proof that he wasn't giving himself a raise because Jacob, or Laban rather, was welcome at any time to come and inspect the flock. Laban agrees. He said, that sounds like a great deal. You're only going to get a couple of the flock, but you, with the blessing of God upon you, you with your expertise in shepherding my flocks are going to make me a rich man. I'm in. Count me in. So Laban agrees. He says, good, let it be as you have said. But we see in verses 35 and 36 that Laban, ever the cheat, ever the manipulator, stacks the deck in his favor. Notice what he does. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. By removing the existing animals that had unusual coloration, he starts Jacob off with nothing. And his thought is that by keeping far away, keeping these flocks separate, he can keep them from breeding. He can keep the unusual ones from having offspring and therefore deprive Jacob Once again, he's trying to cheat him and take advantage of him. But notice in verses 37 through 43, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. We see here Jacob's ingenuity, but even more than that, God's blessing. Jacob then, says in verse 37, took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks." But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So 
The feebler would be Laban's, and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. We see here that Jacob was dealt an unfair hand, but he figured out how to work the system. He tries to cause the white sheep and the black goats to give birth to multicolored offspring by peeling these sticks and exposing the the white wood underneath the dark-colored bark, and he puts them before these animals at the water places when they breed. Now, you have to wonder, what in the world is this talking about? I mean, this is probably outside of most of our area of expertise. I don't know if we have any uh, expert breeders in here, any... Uh, I know we have a couple people with some animals on the farm, but probably nothing like this is going on. You, you, you start to wonder, was there some chemical in the bark that got into the water and somehow Jacob knew that that would kind of get the desired results? Um, did the sight of contrasting white wood and dark colored bark somehow imprint on the minds of the animals and cause them to give birth to multicolored offspring? I don't think so. <laughs> um, If you remember last week, we saw that Rachel was superstitious, and she thought that these mandrakes, these special fruits, would somehow make her fertile and conceive. But we saw that that had nothing to do with actually giving birth. God is the one who opens the womb. This is probably very much like that. This is more superstition than science. And Jacob is doing everything he can. Well, Jacob may have been wrong about the bark and the sticks and that whole thing, but He did know a thing or two about breeding, and we can see here that he made sure the strong animals bred and the weak ones did not. We see that he separated the lambs and the baby goats so that they were quickly weaned and would be ready to give birth more quickly. And through selective breeding, Jacob is able to turn the tables on his uncle. Though Laban had stacked the deck, we see at the end that Jacob's holding all the aces, and he knew how to play his hand. And the result is that despite Laban's intent to deprive him, He's, he increases in wealth. It's kind of hard not to enjoy seeing Laban get what he deserves, isn't it? Don't we all love seeing the underdog win? We love seeing the person that's been taken advantage of come out on top. That's exactly what happens here. It's really living proof of what we find in Psalm chapter 7. In Psalm seven fourteen, it says, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out. And falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Poetic justice, or rather we should say divine justice. You see, Jacob's prosperity has nothing to do with the sticks, it has everything to do with God. God is the one who opens the womb of man and beast alike. And here's the theological truth here that we see that's, that's applicable for us today, that God is able to prosper his people. God is able to protect his people. God is able to fulfill his promises and his gracious purposes to his people and on behalf of his people despite oppression and despite opposition. Remember the promise to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. It doesn't matter if Laban stacks the deck doesn't matter if he tries to cheat Jacob. It doesn't matter if he thinks he knows what he's doing. God is ultimately in control, and God is on Jacob's side, and that makes all the difference. Remember not only God's word to Abraham, but that word that was confirmed to Jacob himself at Bethel in the wilderness when he lay down to sleep and he put his head on that stone and he sees this amazing vision 
And what does God say to Jacob? Behold, I am with you and will keep you with the idea of protecting you wherever you go. And God's good for it. He's fulfilling his promise. Later, Joseph would be mistreated by his brothers. He would be falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He would be forgotten by the freed prisoner whom he had helped. Yet what would happen to Joseph? He ended up the prime minister of Egypt, the second most powerful man in all the world. You remember in the book of Esther, there was a man named Haman who tried to have all the Jews exterminated, and he tried to get his revenge on a man whose name was Mordecai, and he built these gallows to execute them. But because of Esther and Mordecai, but mostly because of God's providence, Haman ended up on the gallows that he himself had built. Time and time again, we see this truth fleshed out in Scripture, and nowhere more powerfully that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ himself, Jesus would be rejected, he would be betrayed, he would even be killed. The greatest injustice, the greatest atrocity, the greatest attempt by the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people to thwart God's plan and deprive us of salvation. And yet what happened? God would turn their violent actions around to accomplish the greatest victory that the universe has ever seen, the defeat of Satan, the destruction of sin's power, the undoing of death itself, and the rescue and redemption of all whom God had determined to save. This is the God we serve. It doesn't matter who's against us. Glorious words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, if God be for us, then who can be against us? And we see it true here as well. And we know that now today God is building his church. Jesus said in Matthew 16 that even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. You see, even persecution only purifies the church and accelerates the spread of the gospel. As the ancient church leader Tertullian once observed, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It doesn't matter what the enemy tries to do to stop it. God always wins. Opposition and injustice and oppression cannot stop God from blessing his people, from keeping his promises, from fulfilling his plans. And this truth ought to be a source of comfort and courage for believers. We see here some poetic divine justice. As despite Laban's crooked plans, Jacob ends up wealthy. But that leads us to scene number two. After Jacob's surprising prosperity, we see now a covert evacuation from Haran. Look what happens in verses 1 through 3. There is not only, not only Jacob's desire to leave, we see now that there is some growing pressure upon him. In verse 1, it says, Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. If you want to make friends and influence people, draining someone else's inheritance is not the best way to go about that. Money makes people funny, doesn't it? And these brothers, these sons of Laban, They are growing increasingly agitated because Jacob's getting richer and their father is getting poor. And they're saying, hey, what's going to be left for me? When dad kicks the bucket, what's going to be ours? 
And it's not just Laban's sons. We see here that Laban himself is not too happy. He'd been ex- he had exploited Jacob before by getting 14 years of labor out of him for his two daughters, which was massively overpriced. But his plan now to deprive him again a second time has backfired. And Jacob has come out on top this time. And this puts Jacob in a precarious position. He's now an outsider. He's not from these parts. And he's becoming quickly public enemy number one, growing pressure for him to leave. But not only is there the danger from Laban and his sons behind him, there's also a divine word calling him forward. God himself says that you need to go home, Jacob. Arise and go. And just like at Bethel, God gives him this divine assurance once again. I will be with you. Don't forget those words. It's both of these factors, the pressure from Laban and company, as well as God's word, that convince Jacob it's time to go. It's time to go. But there's a problem. Will his wives agree? And this is where they've lived all their life, all their family, all their, uh, everything they know, every, their namesake, their reputation, everything is here. Will they go to a land they've never been to, a land full of uncertainty? Well, Jacob presents his plan to Rachel and Leah. Look in verse 4. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was. Interesting. We've seen other stories where there's always someone listening on the other side of the tent flap. Jacob doesn't want that to happen this time. He's going to have a serious conversation with Rachel and Leah. Here's what he says to them in verse 5. I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me And changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel... Of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. He calls his wives out for the secret meeting, and it's a very important conversation. And Jacob is putting his best foot forward, doing everything he can to convince them that they should come with him. You see, if they don't go, if they refuse, it does him no good to return home empty-handed without his wives, without his children. So he needs them to buy in, and he makes his case, which basically boils down to this. Listen, Laban is against me, but God is for me. Laban has cheated me, but God has blessed me. In addition, Laban intends to keep me stuck here, but God is calling me to return home. Whose side will you choose, Rachel and Leah? Will you stay with your father, or will you be loyal to your husband and trust his covenant God? What Jacob is essentially doing here is pointing out the promise of God, the protection of God over the last years, the provision of God, and he's calling his wives to faith. He's saying, will you trust God by going with me? This is a rabbit trail, but incidentally, wives, anytime you trust your husband, anytime you submit to him, you're essentially exercising faith and trust in God. Because your husband doesn't always know what he's doing, but God does. 
God does, and God asks you to trust and follow. So it's an expression for these wives of trusting God, for them to actually agree to go with Jacob. But the question is, will they trust God and go with him? Well, we see in verses 14 and 16 that they do. Rachel and Leah agree. Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. It's really beautiful here to see Rachel and Leah identify, not with their father, but identify rather with Jacob and more importantly, with his God. You see, they know the character of their father. He's shown no loyalty to them. He's only used them as pawns to enrich himself. So they feel no obligation to be loyal to him. And they recognize what Jacob has said, that God has indeed blessed their husband, that God is with him. So they affirm their commitment to Jacob. Whatever God says, you do it and we'll be with you. We'll be with you. But that leads us in verse 17 through 21 to obedience, yes, But we'll see here that it is a very human, very imperfect obedience. It's an obedience that's mingled with fear and with compromise. Look in verse 17 through 21. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Pedan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Okay, everything seems good. But look in verse 19, Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Though Jacob and his wives believed God enough to return home, their obedience is mingled with unbelief, it's mingled with doubt, mingled with fear. And this leads to two very poor decisions, decisions which which nearly lead to extremely disastrous results. Rachel has thrown in her lot with Jacob and with his God, the God who had promised to be with him and protect him, the God who had provided and blessed him despite Laban's trickery. But notice that she steals her father's God's. These are the family idols, these small portable figures, and you have to ask why. Why does she do this? Is it to spite her father? Maybe. Is it because of greed? Perhaps they were valuable, maybe overlaid with precious metals or something? Maybe, but I think what's more likely is that the purpose of these idols, if you look into this, the purpose of these idols was for protection of these nomadic people. I mean, Laban was a man who had great flocks. And if you graze sheep and goats, they eat everything right down to the ground. You kind of have to move them around. So they were always on the move. And oftentimes in those days, idols were thought to be very local. Well, they took their idols with them so that wherever they went, they would have the blessing of the gods, the protection of the gods. So take that into consideration and consider now, why would Rachel steal these images? God had promised to be with them, but she takes her father's gods just in case. Even though they had no power to protect Laban from losing out to Jacob over the last six years, Yahweh's promise of protection and provision was not enough for her. She wants a plan B. 
She wants backup just in case. So she resorts to superstition. Yes, Jacob, we'll trust you and your God will go with you. And just in case, I'm going to take my father's gods as well so that they'll be on our side instead of his. But Rachel's not the only one who compromises. Notice it says that Jacob tricked Laban. The word in Hebrew here literally means that he stole the heart of Laban. It's really very poetic. Rachel stole her father's gods, and Jacob stole his heart, deceiving him, tricking him. God had told Jacob to return home, but he chooses to flee in secret, and you have to ask, why? Why is it? Could not God protect him from the wrath and the schemes and the manipulations of Laban? Since it was a very busy time of year, it was shearing time, uh, and Laban was three days' journey away, Jacob seizes the opportunity to sneak out, and instead of trusting God, he resorts to trickery. Apparently, God's promise of protection was not quite enough for him either. This theme of fear and compromise has already been hammered on several times in Genesis. If you've been with us over the last months, you've seen that Abraham was afraid when he went to Egypt that they would see how beautiful his wife was. They would kill him and take her. So he told a lie and said she was his sister. Isaac had resorted to a very similar scheme. And it always gets them into trouble. And it always takes the divine intervention of God to rescue them because their attempts to fix it always make things worse. So you have to say, why is this theme appearing here once again? Well, first of all, consider that this is just what happened, okay? God's telling us the checkered history of his chosen People. The history of God's people is littered with imperfect people who possess imperfect faith, whose obedience is often mingled with doubt and fear and unbelief. But listen, these are the people God loves. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, none of them are perfect. But these are the people God chooses. And even though they're not always faithful to him, he will always be faithful to them. That's called grace. This is grace. It is God's undeserved blessing, his unearned love, love that could have been forfeited time and time again. But even though they are faithless, God is faithful. The history of redemption is a story of grace upon grace upon grace. So take heart, sinner. God's love for you is not dependent on your performance. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? If it was up to us, if it depended on us, God would have dropped us long ago. But the fulfillment of God's promises and the security of our salvation, it does not rest on our ability. It rests on His. It's all of grace. That's why this story is here. But it's also here because we need to see it, because we do the same thing. This serves as a warning to us. We say that we trust God, don't we? We all say, oh yes, I believe that God will keep his promises. Haven't you seen our doctrinal statement, Redemption Hill Church? We believe that the scriptures are true, that every word is breathed out by God. We have a high view of God and of scripture, right? We tend to even pride ourselves sometimes on that. And yet, and yet, we're so prone to place our trust in the word of God and in ourselves, We're so prone to rely on his promises and look to them, but also to create our own schemes. So often we profess faith in Christ, but we always have a backup plan too, just like Rachel, just like Jacob. Stories like this are here in part to expose that human tendency that we have too, just like them, and to help cure us of our unbelieving tendencies. 
So what's the result of their unbelief? Well, it nearly leads to tragic disaster. As scene number three unfolds, we see that it leads to confrontation and great danger. But by God's grace, it ends with a covenant in Gilead. Look in verse 22 of chapter 31. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. When it says here that Laban gathers up his kinsmen, I mean, this is his brothers, his cousins, his sons, their friends. He gets everyone together. And this is not like when you run out the door to flag somebody down and say, Hey, you forgot something. You left your purse or forgot your coffee mug. No, this is an act of war. When it says that he pursued them and they are fleeing, there's weaponry involved. Laban is coming for Jacob. Just like when Abraham lied about Sarah being his sister, and just like when Isaac did the same, Jacob's compromise creates a serious crisis. And just like his fathers before him, Jacob will need the divine intervention of God to get him out of the sticky situation. And that's exactly what happens, thankfully. Along the way, God speaks to Laban in verse 24, and he warns him to leave Jacob alone. Jacob was in serious trouble, but look in verse 24. We see those sweet words, but God. Aren't you thankful for those words time and time again? But God, he intervenes, and he speaks to Laban, and he warns him. He warns him. Once again, a divine warning to potential threat protects a more vulnerable patriarch. Just like God had spoken to Abimelech years before in a dream and said, do not touch her. Here, once again, it's only because God speaks that Jacob ends up avoiding a great disaster at the hands of Laban. So look what happens when Laban finally catches up in verse 25. Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country. And Laban, with his kinsmen, pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, here's Laban's rebuke. Here's what he says. What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs and with tambourine and lyre? Yeah, right. Who thinks that would have happened, knowing Laban? Well, anyway, he's pretending to be the victim here. Verse 28, And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Yeah, right, he loved them so much, he sold them off and profited from them. But Here comes his accusation. Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? If you remember back years before when Jacob had woke up to Leah instead of Rachel, he had cried out to Laban about his treachery. Well, now it's Laban's turn to cry foul and say, what have you done to me? His complaint actually sounds a lot different than the reality described in the verses previous. I mean, Laban really paints himself as the loving, humble, gracious father who's been wronged by his son-in-law. Family drama always happens when different people see things from different perspectives. And Laban only sees things from his perspective. 
He lives in a world that revolves around himself, and he sees things only through that selfish lens. And he really has two complaints. Here's his two complaints. Number one, why did you steal my family? He says, you drove them away like captives with the sword. And why did you steal my gods? He accuses them of both kidnapping and godnapping, right? Laban, he says, he says, listen, I've respected your God. I listened to him. He told me not to touch you. But why haven't you respected my gods? Why did you steal them? Well, in verses 31 and 32, we see Jacob's defense. You have to think that he's pretty nervous. It's not just Laban standing there before him. Remember, it's Laban and all his kinsmen. And Jacob's greatly outnumbered. In verse 31, he answers and says to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. And anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of your kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Jacob says, listen, I have an excuse for running away. I knew that you wouldn't agree to it, but I didn't take your gods. Feel free to look around, and if you find it, if you find them, whoever stole them will die. He protests his innocence and says, you're not going to find anything. But you have to imagine now that Rachel's heart is in her throat. Jacob doesn't know that she's the one who took them. And now we get to Laban's search in verse 33 through 35. And you almost hold your breath. You see here that the narrator, Moses here, is a master storyteller because the tension builds and increases. This story's been moving pretty fast, but now it really slows down. And the pace is excruciating. Look in verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent. And into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And it slows down even more. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's, right? The lighting is dark. You hear the dissonant violins giving the creepy music. He's walking into Rachel's tent. And Jacob's made this rash vow that anyone with whom he finds these gods will be killed, not knowing that it was his favorite wife, the love of his life, Laban's own daughter. Look in verse 34. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And, he said, and she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. And you give a collective sigh of relief. She escaped. He did not find anything. Thankfully, nothing is found. Rachel's superstition and Jacob's rash vow nearly lead to great tragedy, but they thankfully escape anything bad happening. Now, this scene of Laban searching through the tents is filled not only with tension and danger, but also with great irony. Just as Isaac, years before, you remember, he was deceived, wasn't he, by his younger son, He blindly felt his son feeling his hands and his arms to see which one of his children it really was. And he was tricked, right? He was duped. Well, now we see Laban tricked and deceived by his younger daughter as he feels about the tent looking for the idols. A little bit of deja vu going on here. Thankfully, Laban finds nothing. But not only is that ironic, we also see the absolute futility of trusting other gods. I mean, think about it. 
Rather than these gods protecting Rachel, Rachel has to protect these gods. That's pretty backwards, isn't it? And for later readers, they would not have missed the degrading picture of what happened to these images. These gods were sat on by a menstruating woman, fittingly rendered unclean, degraded in graphic fashion. So much for trusting these supposed gods. You know, the things we trust in instead of God are often similarly useless and unclean. But notice then Jacob's rebuke in verse 36 Laban's had his turn to play prosecuting attorney, but now the roles are reversed, and it's Jacob's turn to give vent to his frustrations. In verse 36, Jacob then, it says, became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself, and from my hand you required it. Which, by the way, is is not the typical tradition. Um, He's saying, listen, I've taken the high road every time. I've gone above and beyond my duty, and I've always made sure that you benefited at my expense. He says in verse 40, there I was, by day the heat consumed me, and, by, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you've changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Jacob doesn't know that Laban's gods are with him, but he does know that Yahweh is, and that has made all the difference. Again, it's a reversal of roles here. Laban came accusing Jacob, but now it's Jacob's turn, and emboldened by Laban finding nothing, he now vents 20 years of built-up frustration, and he, he defiantly declares his innocence. He says, listen, you know I've been a good employee, you know I've been honest, you know that I've made sure that you were blessed even at my expense. And you've not been able to prove that I've taken anything from you. And he openly says before all who were gathered what everybody knew. What everybody knew, but no one had ever had the guts to say to Laban's face. Who has robbed who, Laban? Who has robbed who? Let's review. All of Jacob's faithful work has only been met with treachery and exploitation. He's changed his wages ten times. He's charged him for things that should have cost Laban Only the blessing and protection of God has kept Laban from robbing him blind, sending him away with nothing. He says, if it wasn't for the God of my father, for the fear of Isaac, if he hadn't put the fear in you by speaking to you last night, you would have sent me away with nothing. Jacob publicly declares that God's been with him in fulfillment of his covenant promises. It's only because of God that he has anything, any possessions, and it's only because of God that he's been kept safe. And what's the outcome of this back and forth, this this courtroom scene before all these witnesses? Well, in the end, it's a surprising one from a human perspective. Not what you first thought was going to happen when Laban and his posse saddled up and rode out in pursuit of Jacob and his family. The end result is an outcome that only God could have orchestrated. What starts off as conflict and crisis actually ends 
with a covenant of peace. And Jacob is no longer entangled. He's now independent and autonomous. Look in verse 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. He's still seeing everything from his own point of view, isn't he? Incredibly selfish, unwilling to acknowledge that these things are Jacob, Jacob's, but he does acknowledge God. Look what he says. But what can I do this day? For these my daughters are for the children whom they have born. He says, listen, Jacob, you got me. God is with you. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Well, here's what he suggests in verse 44. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I. And let, us be a wit- and let this be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me. When we are out of one another's sight, if you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and this pillar, which I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do me harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. And Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters And blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Laban is now finally forced to acknowledge that Laban is his own man. He's no longer a subordinate. Laban now approaches him as an equal, as an independent head of a new clan, a new family, and Laban seeks a covenant of peace with him. He recognizes God's hand upon him and knows that this covenant is his best and only option. They will now go their separate ways. Two schemers finally at peace. And who would have thought that Laban would bless them and send them on their way? Just as Jacob erected a stone pillar at Bethel to commemorate the word of God when he had journeyed from Canaan to Haran, that promise of provision and protection, so now this monument, this pillar, this heap of stones not only serves as a boundary between the two clans, it also serves as a reminder that God indeed was with him. And that that divine promise of protection and provision had been kept. The danger behind him now dealt with. Laban is now free to turn and face the danger that is ahead. And we'll see next week. Actually, not next week because Roger will be here. But in two weeks, we'll see that Jacob still has to face Esau, a disgruntled brother with an axe to grind. But come what may, God has promised to be with him. And he's been proving that that promise is good. And that he will keep it. You see, God is able to further his plan despite the oppression of his people and even despite the failures of his people. That's really the main idea today. No matter what people come against God, no matter what forces try to get in his way, God always fulfills his plans. And even when his people fail, even when their faith is weak, even when their obedience is mingled with doubt and sin and compromise, God's grace is able to overcome And his power is able to keep things moving forward. So the question for us today is, will you trust him? 
Will you trust that God? The God of Jacob, who also offers himself to to us to be our God. Will you trust him and will you obey him? Will you do the things he calls you to do? Or will you be crippled by fear? Will you hold back because you doubt whether God is really good? Because you think that maybe some of your own tactics could kind of help God out. Maybe some of your plans can kind of, you know, help push things over the edge. Yes, God's with me to help me, but I also need to get some of these things figured out and do my part. You know, many people will quote, God helps those who help themselves, but that's actually never found in Scripture. And often what you see in Scripture is that God helps those despite the fact that they try to help themselves. Aren't you thankful that this gracious God is the God that we serve? Will you trust him and obey? You see, faith must displace fear in our hearts. We need to let go of our efforts to manipulate the situation and instead trust our God and his promises. Let's rest in his grace and power. And especially when it comes to the destiny of our souls, we need to trust not in how well we've obeyed God's commands, Our confidence needs to not be in in even the strength and the quality of our faith because we're imperfect people. We can be confident in salvation, in forgiveness of sin, in eternity, in heaven with Christ, in a future destiny inheriting the whole world, a new heaven and a new earth where, where we dwell in glory and in righteousness with our King Jesus. We can be confident of that, not because of our merit, I mean, look at Jacob's track record. Look at Isaac's. Look at Abraham's. We can be confident in our inheritance because of the merit of Christ, because of his perfect obedience, because of his death on the cross that pays for our sins, because of his resurrection that delivers us from death. It's through Christ, it's through him, that God is now with us to provide all we need for salvation and to protect us from the greatest threat not just from poor health or financial difficulty or, or personal problems with people, as real as those things are, that, those aren't the real dangers that we face. Those things are small compared to the eternal reality of judgment and, and wrath, hell. That's our true danger, to die separated from God and to pay for our sins for all eternity. That is a far greater danger. To die in your sins apart from Christ is a far greater danger than whatever horizontal problems you may have this morning. And only God can deliver you from that danger. So trust him. Trust in what God has provided through Christ to protect us from the sting of sin and death and hell itself and to provide for us righteousness and life and cleansing and a home, a future, eternal life. Despite the sabotage of sinners, and even despite the sins of the saints, God's promises are always accomplished. Be encouraged by that. Take heart because of that truth this morning. No enemy can thwart his will. And the outcome of our salvation rests not upon our merit, not upon our goodness or effort, but upon Christ's. God's sovereign power overcomes oppression, and his grace and mercy prevail over the failures of his people. And you know why God chooses to do it that way? He does it that way so that his will is accomplished in such a fashion that brings him maximum glory. So that we would sing hallelujah, what a savior. Not so that we would say hallelujah, we have a great savior and we did a pretty good job figuring things out. No. 
Not to us, not to us, O oh Lord, but to your name be the glory. Apostle Paul says God does it this way. He chooses the weak and the unlikely, those who are not wise, those who are not powerful. He does it this way so that those who boast would boast only in the Lord. I hope that's your boast this morning, that we would rejoice in all that God has done for us through Christ, all that he's accomplished through history to provide for us a Messiah and salvation through him. God has done this for his glory, for our good, and for the joy of all who come to rest in his grace and in his promises. May he receive the glory this morning for his great love and for his faithfulness. God, we thank you today that it doesn't depend on us. We thank you that even though our faith is often weak and mingled with fear and doubt, you are faithful. You are faithful to do what you promised to do. We're thankful, God, that our salvation doesn't depend upon our merit, upon our performance. It doesn't depend on on how pure we can make ourselves or how righteous we can become through obedience and good deeds. Our salvation depends on your power, on your grace. And that grace has been revealed through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending him to shed his blood and rise again, to fulfill the law on our behalf, to open the way for salvation. God, if there's any here this morning who are still relying on their own efforts, who are still trying to do enough to make themselves acceptable before you, I pray, God, that today they would give up their self-reliance. They would stop trusting in their own efforts. Lord, I pray that they would embrace the unbelievably good news that it all depends on Jesus, that we are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift from you. It's not something accomplished by works so that none of us can boast. God, for those of us who do know you, who've experienced your grace and mercy, pray that you would help us to relinquish our sinful tendencies to compromise. I pray, God, that you would strengthen our faith and that you would fill us with joy this morning so that we would boast all the more in you and in your faithfulness. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.